The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. On a very special episode of Retire with Style, we'd like to welcome Michael Finke to our inaugural RISA Advisory Board. Over the course of the next month, he, along with four other distinguished professionals, will discuss their perspective on retirement income planning and how the RISA represents an exciting new chapter in that endeavor. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Retire with Style. I'm Wade, and I'm joined with my co-host, Alex. And we're also joined today by, by a very special guest who's a, a returnee, so to speak, with the show, Michael Finca, Professor of Wealth Management at the American College of Financial Services. And, and a long-time colleague of mine. It's, uh, uh, did I just step over your intro? I apologize. So. <laughs> no, you're good. No, 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 no. <laughs> no worries. We go live. We go live. I was babbling. Run with it. <laughs> I was trying to think up an intro for you, but uh, you have a podcast of your own as well that's now in its third season, Wealth Managed. Oh, yes, Managed. the Wealth Managed a... podcast with uh, David Blanchett, now of PGM, formerly of Morningstar. So we're podcast mm-hmm. better. Michael, but do you, actually, do you... I think you guys have a more popular podcast, which... Well, I don't really know about that. <laughs> well, I'll ask you something. Now, do you guys have as much trouble as we do with the intros? <laughs> This is the best intro we've ever had, honestly. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, uh, and uh, and I'm glad. I'm glad we're beating you in your podcast number. That makes me happy. It may frustrate you, but it makes us happy, right, Wade? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's hard to get data on that sort of thing, but uh, I like to tell myself this is a popular Don't be podcast. Falsely modest. <laughs> yeah. you guys are no, and, and as you guys can tell, listening in. I mean, Wade and Michael go way back, good friends, even David. And I'm, I've recently come to know Michael this last year specifically. Great guy, great, great people. So uh, welcome. And frankly, I'd like to just at the beginning part, we have a good article to talk about that Michael recently introduced. But I'd like to start off uh, on, a, on a business note that I'd like to welcome Michael to our advisory board for the RESA, the Retirement Income Style Awareness uh, company that Wade and I started, you know, off the backs of the RISA. And uh, this is something that we've been putting together for the last year. And we may had a major announcement yesterday. The podcast is going to be published tomorrow. So this is kind of back to the future kind of comment. But uh, Michael is, is, is on this advisory board and we're counting on him to, to really help us with the research aspect of what this research agenda of the RISA started. And uh, we couldn't be happier. I, I mean, there's only so, there's only a handful of people in the retirement income space that we really look at and, you know, for guidance. And Michael is definitely at least the fourth or fifth, right? Right? Wait, no, no, no. Michael is definitely up there. <laughs> Michael is definitely up there. So uh, we're, we're... Everyone else we're, declined. So. Yeah, everyone else declined. <laughs> you know, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're like thrilled to, to have Michael join us. 
And uh, and Michael, again, before we begin, uh, uh, a few words maybe uh, so people get your take on you know how you how you even first heard about this and uh, you know and, and why you decided to to join us and you know continue this journey with us. Well, thank you, Alex. And it's a it's a very prestigious group, and I'm not sure how I was asked to join, uh, but thank you very much for allowing me to be part of this journey. Um, it is you know it's obviously something that I've been fascinated with for a long time. Which how do you think about beginning to develop the right approach to creating a retirement income for yourself. Obviously, this is something that a lot of Americans are going through right now. They've got this big lump sum of money that they've saved in their 401k. They got to figure out what to do with it. Uh, they've got to figure out how to use the right approach for them. Is it something that's going to emphasize safety? Is it, gonna, is it something that's going to emphasize growth? And I think what you guys have done is think in a more advanced way than anybody that I know of about how to actually assess whether or not one approach to retirement income is best for you or whether you should take another approach. And it's one of the things I like about it is that it's it's objective. You know, you, it doesn't push one approach over another. It's just there to help people understand how their preferences align with a potential solution. So it is a very exciting idea. It's something that uh, I think has not been measured previously and oftentimes gets measured incorrectly using things like risk tolerance, which really has nothing to do with your preference for how you want to use your money in retirement to create a lifestyle. Uh, so it is something that uh, is, as a researcher, it is fascinating to me. It really does appear from looking at the data that it is a unique preference, uh, that our preference for how we want to build an income in retirement is personal uh, and it differs among people. And it's almost impossible to predict based on a lot of other financial indicators. No, that's that, that, thank you for that. And, and just, you know, I, I mean, Michael, and I and Wei, we, we've had discussions on already, you know, where things could be uh, tweaked here and there or, 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 or taken in another direction. So we're very, very excited with with his input going forward. And again, I mean, we kid at the beginning, but, you know, we're thrilled to have him as, as part of this. Wei? Yeah, that was a weird technical glitch. Uh, I got cut off of our podcasting tool, <laughs> but I'm back. So if you were asking me a question, I, I didn't hear it. Uh, I thought I said it was way. You're, you're... <laughs> <laughs> I am back. <laughs> Never Don't ask me. You don't even need to say anything, Wade. It's a podcast. No one can see that you were cut off. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said Wade as though you'd asked me a question. I was like, uh. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I just meant that. You, anything more to add with, with regards to Michael's appointment and, you know, uh, contribution to, to, to this uh, craziness that we call the Risa? I mean, I absolutely, like Michael really was the first person we started talking with when we were developing this just because he is such a well-known name and has contributed so much to the retirement income research more broadly that uh, definitely the opportunity to have him involved is absolutely wonderful. And we're, we're thankful and grateful that he's, he's part of the, the advisory board with us. That's, that's, yep, that's awesome. And we'll put a link to that uh, announcement on the show notes and also... January 23rd, we're going to start kind of peppering this. Uh, Wade and myself will have a master class on retirement income in your advisory practice. This one is obviously geared towards advisors. We do a lot for consumers, and we will have that sometime later on in the quarter, in the first quarter of 2023. But uh, January 23rd, 24th, Wade and I will be having a master class on retirement income and how you know you can incorporate it into your practice. 
So I, I do encourage you to sign up. That will be on the show notes, and, and it will be limited. So only the first 2,000 people we can we can accept simply because we don't want to pay for the the licensing of the of the webinar software. So 2,000, right. and, and there it is. So I, I strongly suggest you you sign up. And with that, Michael, you wrote, you know, I, I want to say a month ago, a month and change ago, a pretty cool article that I think actually lends itself well to this lends itself well to this whole retirement income gestalt, if you will, in terms of how you want to think about it, how it's formed, and how people, if you take a different angle, it, it, it may look like something else. And, and, and you're challenging here in a very smart way this this sort of uh, platitude. Uh, well, it could be a platitude, you know, depending on how it's used, right? Of uh, invest for the long term and call it a day. Uh, do you want to expand upon that, and we'll begin uh, chipping away at it? Yeah, let's start at the well, very I beginning, even... which is. Oh, oh go ahead. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Once again, I'm not <laughs> just. No, no, no. <laughs> but uh, in in terms of like when I talk about the primary risk factor, the risk premium versus the risk pooling. I usually say that with the same data that you're talking about in your article, the, the Morningstar data going back to 1926, historically, the S&P 500 has outperformed long-term U.S. government bonds by about 6% a year on average. And so that's the risk premium, the idea that you take on market risk with equities and over the long term, that should benefit you. And usually with a lot of how software works for financial advisors and so forth, that it's sort of a fixed risk premium that's baked in. And what your article is getting at is how that sort of assuming a 6% average risk premium really hides a lot of volatility around that where there can be long periods of time where the risk premium can be much lower and a lot of long periods of time where it can be higher. And so that's the really fascinating aspect, if that helps with an intro to yep. <laughs> your comments. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Wade. Um, if we think about what risk means, when you're taking investment risk, from the traditional perspective of an economist, risk means that there's going to be a wider variation in outcomes. And what does that mean when it comes to retirement income? It means that there's going to be a wider variation in the amount of money that you spend every year. So if you imagine uh, when you're saving for retirement, you go to a bank, you put uh, $1,000 in the bank, you say invest in stocks or invest in bonds, and then you come back to the bank five or 10 or 20 years later, and you pull your money out, and the amount of money that you have to spend depends on the performance that you got in those stock or bond investments over that five or 10 or 20 year period. And oftentimes when we're projecting how much we're going to be able to spend in the future or how we should invest... We, we sort of assume that if we take more risk, we will have more money to spend. But that's not actually consistent with the economic idea of what it means to take risk. What it means to take risk is that you have to be more willing to accept a wider range of spending outcomes. So one of the things I wanted to study in this paper is historically, what does that look like? If you had invested a dollar, how much did that grow to over the next 20 years if you'd invested in uh, safe investments like CDs or, or short-term treasury bonds, if you invested in intermediate-term bonds or long-term bonds or stocks? And oftentimes, if you just look at those historical averages, you would assume, well, of course, if I have a 10-year time horizon, I'm going to be able to spend more money if I invest all my money in stocks. And the reality is that it has not been that consistent historically um, but 
we really went through this magic period in the middle of the 20th century in the United States, where if you had a long time horizon, your stocks would have just absolutely trounced bonds. Um, and that really only happened twice in U.S. history. We had this great period between 1934 and 1953, where a dollar invested in stocks never grew to an amount less than $7. Since 1990, over a 20 year period, or a subsequent 20, over a 20, 20 year, year period. Since 1990, and there have been a number of 20 year periods since 1990, a dollar has never grown as high as $7 over the course of the next 20 years. So in other words, we have this period between 1934 and 1953, where on average, a dollar invested in stocks grew to $13, never grew to less than $7 over 20 years. And then we have this more recent period where a dollar never grew to $7. And yet when we look to the future, we look at those historic return data from this period in the United States that has not reappeared for a long time and is likely not to reappear again. And oftentimes when we use historical data, for example, when we try to simulate how much we can spend in retirement using different types of strategies that involve taking investment risk, we can overestimate um, the amount of return that we're gonna get from investing in risky assets like stocks, and then we can underestimate the true spending risk that if you invest in stocks and stocks do not perform well, you're going to have to cut back on your lifestyle. It's, you know what, you know, when, you, when you're saying this, Michael, something that, that came to mind, you're pointing out two, two, two point periods, two, 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 two time periods where stocks significantly outperform, right? Uh, bonds, right? I, I, and, and I think, and I'm looking back at this, there have been two time periods where the opposite has happened. Wasn't it 1979 or something like that, that after 10, 10, 15 years of underperformance, you got, you know, Newsweek published the death of equity. You know, it's kind of an inverse thing where it, there's never been a positive. And then a, a few years after 08, right, I want to say even 2016, 2015 or something like that, a similar sort of long period happened where stocks, you know, there was a long period of underperformance as well. It's kind of funny, huh? Like where you had you're pointing out there was these two big periods of outperformance, and you know, just anecdotally, off my top of my head, without looking at the numbers, there've been two at least two significant long-term periods of underperformance too. Yeah, and you don't even have to look that far back. You can look at say the beginning of uh, 1999 through the end of 2000. It was roughly a two-year period where if you'd invested. Um, at the beginning of any one of those months in stocks over the next 10 years, you would have had less money than what you started with yeah. over a 10-year time horizon. In fact, it got as low one month if you invested in the wrong month. You would have had 70 cents for every dollar that you invested in stocks over the next 10 years. That really wasn't that long ago. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, especially after the run-up that we've had in the stock market since 2009, they start to believe that stocks only go up by 10% per year. Uh, but what we've seen is that, um, you know, valuations go up a lot, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we can expect those kind of returns on the stock market for the next 10 or 20 years. And so I'm a, I'm a client that walk into an advisor's office, and he or she shows me this chart, this Ibbotson chart that shows you stocks in the long run, where there's this chart that you'd be a moron not to put it on, not to put it in stocks simply because you're seeing the 70-year period 
you're saying not so fast, correct? Because of the, because of what you just said. They're... Yeah, you know, much of that growth was that outperformance of stocks that occurred between in the mid 20th century in the United States, and then uh, between 1979 actually and 1999. That was the second period, 20 year period of a big run up in the stock market, but. Since 1990, really hasn't happened over 10 or 20 year periods. We just haven't seen that same amount of success. Now, where the problem really happens is when advisors use those historical data to project the safety of investing in stocks going forward, uh, because they assume that stocks are going to continue that outperformance that happened in the 20th century in the United States, it's probably not going to happen again. Um, and I know that this is something that Wade for a long time has been criticizing is that, you know, if you just look at U.S. data in the 20th century, you've got a pretty small window into what stocks could actually do. And if you look globally, then you see that, yeah, stocks pretty much behave exactly the way economists would say that they would behave, which is that they sometimes outperform. On average, they outperform, but sometimes they perform worse. Yeah, and you make a few interesting points in the article as well about how like things may have changed in particular that could cause the risk premium to just not be as easy to realize in the future as it becomes easier to invest. Uh, like For much of the 20th century, you couldn't just log into your brokerage account and, and shift funds between different accounts. It was, it was a more complicated process and there were fewer households involved. And so could you talk a little bit about how sort of this changing institutional structure of investing may be leading to a lower risk premium in the future? Yeah, why, does, why do economists think that on average, you need to get a higher return to induce investors to buy stocks? It's because people don't like that variation in spending over time. Um, but there's been a mystery. And the mystery has been, why are stock returns so high historically in the United States? It's actually called the equity premium puzzle. And one explanation is that people are just dumb. Another explanation is that it used to be hard to invest in a diversified portfolio of stocks for the average investor. Um, if you think about the way the world worked back in 1970, uh, if I wanted to buy stocks, I would have to go to my stockbroker and I might have to pay 70 bucks to get them to trade shares of stock. And I, they, would, they would buy me shares of stock and it would cost a lot of money to put together a well-diversified portfolio of a number of stocks. So oftentimes when people invested in stocks, they only bought maybe five or six different stocks, which meant that their portfolio was not very efficient, which meant that you had to give them a bigger reward for taking investment risk. But today, we have mutual funds that are far more popular than they were in the past. Any, anybody, including any employee, now invests in mutual funds through their 401k and target date funds. Uh, the costs are, instead of 75 bucks a trade, they're, they're next to nothing. Uh, so it is so much easier and cheaper for the average American to buy stocks. And if that's the case, you would expect that maybe a component of that um, mysteriously high return of stocks is no longer a barrier. Um, and the other, the other thing is that stocks, actually this, the taxation on gains in stocks is the long-term taxation is far more attractive now than it was even 30 years ago. 
So you reduce taxes, you reduce what's known as transaction costs. All of a sudden, it makes people want to, to enter to the stock market. They bid up the prices of stocks, but that means the expected return is going to be lower. I see Alex talking, but he's muted at this point. <laughs> okay, thank you, Wade. There. <laughs> uh, it's all right. What I said previously didn't matter. Uh, now, so I, I, I was thinking of a counter to that, but I, I, obviously I haven't thought of it as, as, as much as you have. You're, you're assuming because a sort of illiquidity piece is removed, investors were, you know, the frictions of trading, investors were given some sort of premium for this illiquidity. And now that those frictions are removed, that expectation is gone. I, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe, I, but I, I, I kind of, you, you don't buy the sort of risk, risk, you know, stocks are riskier than bonds. Hence, investors are just natural, regardless of the frictions, investors are naturally going to expect a higher return over time, or at least over some periods of time. And the fact that they don't occur every year, and they were only present in two periods, Okay, so what? They were present in two periods, and that's when you were rewarded for for holding the the stocks versus you know versus bonds, just simply because there's still a risk story there. And could you make the case that if frictions are removed, you know, is that necessarily a good thing? Maybe there was a premium before because frictions were there, and it didn't allow people to trade a lot. And as, as you know, you know, the more you're the more you trade, the more mistakes you kind of make. Hence, that in itself could could be a crutch. I, again, just this is my uh, quick response here, and maybe I, I, I ran in circles on, on some of these arguments, but I would still think there's a risk story there. I mean, the fact that it doesn't happen consistently is in itself, is in itself some sort of risk story. And I'm not so sure removing frictions, you know, lends itself to a reduced premium. Again, I, I, but this is just an opinion, not, not a matter of fact by, by any means. If you're looking for more personal advice, Please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. You know, one of the things you can look at is how much are investors willing to pay for a dollar of profit that the company makes on average? And what we saw is that in the modern era, investors are willing to pay a lot more for a dollar of profit. That suggests that one of two things, either they're more comfortable investing in stocks, like the transaction cost of investing in stocks have gone down and or they're more risk tolerant than they were before. Um, it doesn't really matter in terms of what the reason is. What matters is that when stocks are more expensive, the premium that you get from investing in stocks is probably going to be lower. And in fact, I, 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 I buy that. We look at that, and uh, and I find that 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 premium, the amount of money that people are willing to pay for a dollar of profit, is an incredibly strong predictor of how I, well stocks perform in the future. A hundred percent. I totally subscribe to that. I, I think you see that it, it makes sense. That's the whole premise of this, right? And even, you, you know, as stock ownership has increased over the world, over the country, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of implies that there's this increased appetite, at least, for that type of exposure. And even then, you're right, if, if the P.E. ratio goes up, you know, systematically over time, that then implies that there is people are willing to pay more for a dollar worth of earnings, et cetera, et cetera. 
you've done some work with that too, right? With regards to the CAPE ratio, how, how have you seen that being some sort of precursor to expected earning, expected returns going forward? <clears throat> you know, I want to make the point also, Alex, that there is a consumer problem here. And the consumer problem is that sometimes when you go to the investment store and you look up on the shelf and you see stocks and the expected return on the stocks is advertised at 10 to 12% per year. You, you pick it off the shelf and you say, yeah, I want that. But <laughs> if, it, if in reality, what it gives you is five to 6% per year, and bonds are giving you 5% per year, then I'm like, well, forget that. I'm going to pick the bond off the shelf. Now, Absolutely. now, one of the problems that I see is that oftentimes, if, if it's true that stock returns going forward are probably going to be lower, which I think a lot of economists would assume they are, if you look at many of the big financial firms like BlackRock and JP Morgan, their projections of stock returns are not that 12, 10 to 12%. They're, they're giving, I think, people a realistic idea of what stock returns are going to be going forward. And it's more like maybe 6%. So maybe 6 or 7%, you've got one box of the stocks that you can pull off the shelf. You've got a box of bonds that are 5%. You can choose which one you want, but you at least you have a realistic idea of what the trade-offs are. But if you position the stocks as 12% and now bonds are you know 5.5%, then you you may be inducing people to make the bad a bad decision about risk. I I think you're 100 percent right. I, I, uh, two questions from there. Uh, you're ultimately getting at it, and for for listeners, I just want to get to the point. Yeah, Michael's bringing up this you know return per unit of risk that you're taking. There's an economy to that, and you want to make sure you're getting compensated accordingly for the return per unit of risk. And when you compare an expected six percent return in stocks versus an expected I don't know, 5.75% returns in bonds, then, you know, you'd go with bonds all day long from an efficiency standpoint. Uh, something that people could benefit from, and, and Wade, chime in, that's why I know you've done some work. Because I, I, I'm, very I'm very sensitive to someone listening to this, thinking, oh, but that's what people say all the time. They say the expected returns are 6%. They've been saying the expected return is 6% for the last 20 years or, or whatever, but you know what? It's not always the case, and these guys don't know what they're talking about, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's important that these folks realize that you're not guessing 6% because it's been 12, and so you just get a sense that it's high. There's a certain way that you build up an expected return model. And, and you know, for the benefit of our listeners, it may be beneficial for you to just quickly kind of go over how that was constructed. Well, I mean, there's a lot of voodoo science that goes into expected returns, but there it is. Um, you can just do it <laughs> using valuations of stocks. So there's what's known as a, exactly. a CAPE ratio, which is uh, the price that you're paying for smoothed earnings over the last 10 years. You don't want to just use one year of earnings. You want to use earnings over the last 10 years for a company because it's, you know, earnings tend to go up during an expansion. They go tend to go down during a recession. So um, you look at the average 10-year earnings, and then you look at the how much money you're willing to pay for that stock. And that ends up being a surprisingly consistent predictor of what returns are going to be in the near future, um, let's say over the next 10 years. And, uh, you know, in fact, since 1995, it's predicted 10-year returns with a 90% degree of accuracy. And, and that actually 
got really depressing towards the end of 2021, because if you looked at how high valuations were at the end of 2021, it would have suggested that the 10 year return on stocks is probably about 2%. Um, and that's not that's before inflation. So the real after inflation return would have probably have been negative. Um, and it's, we don't know what the returns are going to be between 2021 and 2031. But I wouldn't be shocked if that's actually accurate. I'm like Mr. What does that do for retirement? (laughs) Um, I mean, the first thing, I think a lot of people retired in 2021 who met their savings target. They're like, "Woo, I got a million bucks. I should be fine. (laughs) And then they kept, you know, 60 or 70 percent of that in the stock market because the stock market had done so well. Um, and here they are, and now their million dollars has turned into $750,000, and they're starting to wonder whether that was really a good decision to retire. Um, but I think if they would have considered the fact that they're probably not going to get a very high return from taking a lot of risk back in 2021, uh, the market really wasn't giving us very much, both with bonds or stocks back in 2021. That also suggests that at different times, you can retire into a period where your portfolio expectations are relatively low. You could retire in a period where your portfolio expectations are pretty high. Um, you know, obviously, 2000, at the end of 2022, that's a much better time to retire than it would have been at the end of 2021 with the exact same amount of money. So if you just had all your money in cash over the last year, you're, you're much better off now because bonds are paying a much higher yield. Um, and stocks are much cheaper than they were at the end of 2021. But for people who retired at the end of 2021, it looks all bad news. No, no, uh, Michael, it, it, it sounds, it's, it's reality, but you don't sound like doom and gloom. You just sound like somebody that put some money in FTX last week. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just what, bleeding no, out I mean, now. We have a little bit of a discussion about the whole crypto phenomenon back in 2020 and 2000. Go ahead, go ahead. Let it rip. People ended up getting swept up in it. And it's related to this idea that people tend to get really excited about stuff that goes up in value a lot. And they imagine, gosh, what if I would have just invested in that a year ago? I would be a billionaire. Um, you know, we, we tend to get attracted by shiny things. And I think in a lot of ways, crypto was the ultimate shiny investment. And, and yet it really was not an investment because there was nothing there. It was just something somebody invented and they were inventing more of them all the time. Um, and it's it's I think people get disenchanted. And I'm, I'm especially worried about young people these days because I think young people had a lot of their beliefs crushed over the last year when it comes to investing. This whole idea of investing starting to seem not very appealing to a lot of people. You know, it's just a scam. You're going to lose yeah. money, etc. Um, you know, and and I think for those of us who have been in this game for a while, especially those of us who had lived through the tech bubble of 1999, uh, 1998, we've seen what can happen when people invest with their emotions, with their sentiment, and not so much with a very realistic idea of what the returns are going to be. And uh, I actually fault a lot of people in the financial world for pushing what was essentially, obviously, a shiny thing that was going to get a lot of people in trouble. And I think especially with retirees, if if they got attracted to that shiny thing, then uh, it, it really knocked their whole financial situation off balance. No, I, I, I don't disagree. I, I, look, I, I think to me, it's 
it's still one of these emerging capital kind of industries where you don't know how this thing is going to end up. If, if there's even ultimately a utility for it or not, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know enough about it to speak intelligently in that matter. But, you know, what, what got me, Michael, was folks just saying, well, who knows if it's good or bad, just put 1% of your net worth in it and, right. and give it a go. I mean, that that's equivalent of, like, to me saying, look, who knows, but put 1% of your assets on the kitchen table and let's burn it and let's uh, let's see what happens. You know, it's just a bad use of, of capital and, it, I don't know, it just seems senseless in that sense. I, I don't know where crypto lands. I, you know, you, you know the, the, the good answer is, I don't know about crypto, but I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of the blockchain. You know, that kind of like, <laughs> you know, let me cover my ass and just say that kind of answer. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's not like I'm going to read some thesis on the blockchain right now. It's not something I need to do. But it seems it's an industry that's still in this nascent stage, ultimately. Whether there's utility that comes from it, a handful of people say that, yes, this will create something. There'll be utility from these networks. But that's that's not for me to say. And that's not why people listen to Retire With Style. But 100%, uh, I, I, I think uh, what you saw here was a case study in behavior finance where, I'm buying it because it's going up and I'm going to sell it to somebody else who will buy it at a higher price. And that's that. Yeah. My only disagreement is that it's not a nascent <laughs> industry that uh, uh, magic beans and tulips have been. A no, very no, old. but I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of trying to be nice and giving people credit. Look, they are trying to create the sort of network that is, you know, more technologically efficient than the current system, et cetera, et cetera. But I, again, that's the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> I, I seem to, I'm willing to like accept that as a possibility. Let me say it like that. Well, bringing this back to retirement, we've had past episodes about the idea of the funded ratio. And... <laughs> he's good, uh, Michael. He's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's why we're number one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with the funded ratio, you just you take the bond yield and you use that, and you just the way it works is you assume all your investments are earning bond-like interest rates. And you see if your plan can work without taking market risk. Now, a big critique of that approach, especially for more probability-based minded individuals is it's too low of a return assumption. Why would you assume you're only going to earn bond-like returns when you have this big risk premium that you'll get with your diversified portfolio? And if I'm really understanding what you're saying, Michael, it's kind of leading to this point that you don't necessarily want to assume a high risk premium. It's not to say that you're not wanting to invest in the stock market, but it's more a matter of if you get some greater upside, that's wonderful, but don't don't expect to get a big risk premium with your retirement. And so it makes sure your plan can work without assuming a 6% or whatever risk premium is part of the calculation. Uh, it also might lead to, and, and this is with the different retirement styles, you know, I've written a lot about this idea of risk premium versus risk pooling with annuities or insurance. And annuities can look pretty good, even competing against a 6% risk premium. But I guess the point is, if annuities are competing against a 1% or 2% risk premium, that, that makes risk pooling a much more powerful generator of income in retirement. And I don't know if you may have some thoughts on that point as well. Well, no, other than the only I, thing I would say is, Michael, if you can also tell people what risk pooling is within your answer, just so they, <laughs> they get a sense of it. Yes, he's um, our vocab person. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about the cake. You talked about the cake once in an example. I thought it was great. Yeah, the, the cake <laughs> example. 
Curious if you should be looking at a Roth conversion, or what a Roth conversion even is? Head over to mclaneam.com slash Roth to get McLean's free ebook, Is a Roth Conversion Right for You? And learn about when you might want to do a Roth conversion, and when you might not. Just head over to mclaneam.com slash Roth to download your free ebook today. So if I'm investing for the future and I'm investing in bonds, uh, I've, I've got to plan out in retirement how long the bonds are going to last. So are they going to last to 90 or 95 or 100? And when I'm thinking about how long my money needs to last, I have to start thinking about how likely am I to be alive? So let's say you're a 65-year-old healthy woman. You've got a 10% chance you're going to live to 100. You've got to spread out all your bond investments to the age of 100. Um, and then you look at a mortality table and you see, well, I've got a 50-50 chance of making it to the age of 90. Why don't I just pool my money together with a bunch of 65-year-old women? We can spend as if we're going to live to the age of 90 and then whoever is still alive continues to get the money if some of them die before the age of 90. So if someone dies at 80, they're essentially going to be subsidizing someone who lives to 100. But if we all pool our money today, instead of us having to spread our money out over 35 years, which means that we spend less every year, we can spread our money out over 25 years, which means we get to spend significantly more and we don't have to worry about running out. Um, now, that, that's with bonds, but we could try to do that with stocks too. So we could try to spread our money to the age of 100, and we could assume that we're getting a risk premium. So we can spend more every year, and we might even hope that we can spend more than if we invested in bonds until the age of 90, which we could do if we pooled our money with other retirees. Um, and that risk pooling essentially allows us to spend more with our safe investments. The alternative is that we can try to get an extra rate of return from accepting investment risk, but we still have to spread out our money to the age of 100. But what that also means is that if we don't get that premium that we hoped for, we're going to have to cut way back on our spending. I mean, that's what risk means in retirement. Risk means that if I don't get the return I'm hoping for, if I live too long, I'm going to have to cut back on my spending. Um, so what Wade is saying is that you, know, you have these two approaches. One is safety. One is taking risk. And you might take more risk with the hope that that allows you to spend more. But you also have to be willing to accept the possibility that you might have to spend less. And this, this is why I think the better approach is to focus on how flexible you're willing to be, what we discussed in our previous podcast, and fund those expenses that you can't be flexible on using risk pooling or some type of a safe investment like bonds. And then when it comes to our more flexible spending, then you can decide if you want to take investment risk, which means that your spending is going to be more volatile, or do you want to again pool with other retirees? And there's also ways of taking investment risk and taking advantage of risk pooling, which essentially means that on average, you get to spend more, but your spending might be more variable. Well, that's a yeah, very great. long explanation. No, but I think it's very it's very thorough. I mean, uh, honestly, uh, go to your podcast app, hit rewind thirty seconds, hit rewind thirty seconds twice, and and listen to it again because it, it's it no, but it you know it's it's very to the point. I mean, that's what it's all about at at the end of the day. And it, it got me to thinking when I was looking when I was listening to you, I was looking at the chart from your article about the growth of a dollar over the next twenty years. And you started in 1990. 
and I will put a link to the show notes. I, I recommend you check out the article. It's actually really good, and it's 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 very approachable. And one of the things from looking at that chart, and I'm doing this from the from the from the point of view of an advisor, somebody's coming into my office, and it it got me to thinking. Uh, there's a gentleman called Scott Boswell, Boswell, great guy over at DFA, and he once did a presentation where it's kind of similar to this, where hey, how accurate are you going to be in your advice over the life cycle of your advisory career, right? It's very interesting. Like, I think you may get a kick out of it where, okay, if somebody walks into your office and you pull out the charts and tell them, okay, this is why we're going to invest in an 80-20 portfolio or a 70-30 portfolio, how often are you going to be right? How often is that client going to look back seven years, ten years later and say, dude, I'm still underwater. What's going on here? Because that's, at the end of the day, you know, you can you can provide best in class advice, but that best in class or not best, in, but you know, you can provide the stocks for the long term advice, and and tell yourself I'm going to be right on average, right? But there's still going to be a subset of people that throughout their life, you know, have been with you for ten years and they're still waiting on that advice to hit, and it doesn't, you know. And and I've I've always str- not struggled with that as the wrong word, but it's as an advisor. If, you, if you're constantly telling a client, okay, well, look, 70-30, portfolio, you do this, 80% chance that you're going to make it, et cetera, et cetera. If you give this advice enough times, yeah, you'll net out hopefully okay. But the reality is there's going to be a subset of people that are going to be with you for a very long time and are still going to be thinking, when am I going to see this? When am I going to see this? When am I going to see this? And so I look at your chart of growth of a dollar over the next 20 years, and man, there are plenty of times where that growth of the dollar is below long-term bonds. And so I'm, and the advisor's going, doing their quarterly reports and having these meetings with their clients, and they're showing them, oh, look at your statements. And a lot of times the advisor's going to have to say, well, don't worry, it's coming, it's coming. You paid for the risk, now get ready for the reward. You know, those, those kind of arguments. And I, now I'm wondering, has anyone, have ever give, has anyone ever given serious thought to a study where it says, how accurate is your advice if this is all you say? You know, how accurate has been your advice for the last, I don't know, 20 years? If all you've been doing is telling somebody a total return is the way to go and that's it. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's, it's you know, the advisor has to accept that there are going to be periods where they're going to be wrong for 20 years. Um, you know, <laughs> how many companies do you <laughs> And but I think for retirees, they have to accept the consequences that, you know, this is a this is what I hope is going to happen. But I have to live with the consequences of stuff not happening the way I hoped it would. Um, you know, you can't this this whole retirement planning thing. It, it, it's nice to be very optimistic, you know, follow what I, I, I like to call faith based planning in the sense that you have faith that the market is going to bail you out. <laughs> Um, but you know, sometimes it doesn't and you've got to be willing to accept the consequences. Well, on that cherry note, <laughs> we may be hitting our time limit for this episode. I think you're just going to cut me off now. We can't end like that. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta come on, wait, you got, you got a glass half empty, glass half full for us. <laughs> no, no, all I'm trying to hit home with is that, look, you really need to have your spider senses in tune for what what the client is, is kind of uh, gravitating towards. Because if you just pitch them on a slide deck, 
that's full of stock for the long term. Look, you know, it, it's in the bag. You'd be crazy not to do this. You're kind of fooling yourself because there's going to be significant periods of time where that, that story doesn't hit. And you're going to be making stuff up for the next 10, 15 years just to try to save face. When if you, you set expectations and you say something, you know, you show them, as opposed to the innocent chart, you show them the growth of a dollar over the next 20 years that uh, Michael and David came up with. And you just say, this is the, the reality of things. This is the expectation of your your trajectory with us. You know, this is this is kind of the best news I could tell you. Then that person's making an informed decision, and and, and and you know we'll find out, you know where where he's most likely gonna where he or she is most likely gonna land. But I think if you sell the returns, you're gonna die by the return, you know. And and I think that's that's very important in terms of not only your your you know to your point, you know, I who would care less if the price is right or wrong. It's really more about the the investment experience that the client had. And if that person you know was just trusting on faith. This whole no, but stocks are going to turn around and look the four percent rule and all of that. I think it's more complicated than that, and and I think you yeah, have to know yeah. what you're doing when, when you walk into it. And that, that's all. There's a lot of that, advisors who do. I mean, there are a lot of yeah. advisors who really do say that the the job of the advisor is to convince the client to be as close to 100 percent stocks as possible to benefit from stocks for the long run. But yeah, this research that, that Michael's done is really pointing out that even 20 years may not be sufficient for the long run. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and, and, and there it is. There's really not much that. It, it's really one of those that just by everywhere. It's a cool little article. We'll put it on there on the show notes and, and check it out. And, you know, just to come full circle. Like I said, you know, we think about these things at, on a couple of levels and, uh, just like to thank Michael for you know for joining us on this advisory board, and uh, we're looking forward to his participation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And I don't know if we ever mentioned it, but that article is in the advisor perspectives, and, and we will have that link in the show notes. So thanks, everyone. Have a great. Uh, we are in Thanksgiving week, so have a great Thanksgiving celebration, and we'll be back again next week. Thank you, Professor Michael Finca, for being our guest today. Thank you, guys. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.